Mech Pilots Online Battletech Manuals Online Long-Term Memory Offline All Systems Bungled Initiating Bungletech Podcast Hello Mech Warriors in our fourth deployment of Bungle Tech, we wrap up the journey through our mad minds by explaining the hidden objectives we leverage in our game modes. Regale on an absolutely destroyed mad dog in our battlefield highlight. Discuss a falling mistake that has had comical results. And read a sample of the short story Tales from the Crack Canopy, Blind Arrogance. Mech Warriors, lock those machine guns on rapid fire and get prepped to embrace the heat. This deployment is gonna get hot. Bonus objective, extraordinary proclamation, initiating. Before we get into the main topic of today's episode, I wanted to take a quick moment to share my appreciation for all the organizers out there that help facilitate Battletech Mercenary Kickstarter events. To those at Catalyst, including reps and demo teams, and to those gaming stores and staff that hosted us like my amazing local store, Ogre's Den. Truly, you are lowercase gods among humankind. May your legend never die. This applause is for you. And another quick note. You may recall my unique Jenner mating call strategy reference last episode. Well, the outcome? It worked. Truly the Battletech universe works in both absurd and wondrous ways. Primary Objective Podcast Topic Segment Initiating Hello my friends and thank you for joining us for another episode of Bungle Tech Episode 4. If Episode 3 made us official, Episode 4 will make us washed out. Going downhill very fast. I'm once again joined by the stupendous, the amazing, the sensual Michael. You know, maybe we are washed up. <laughs> I've decided. Say hello, Michael, but in a sensual way. No, I refuse. Come on, Michael. Do it for your fans. No. <laughs> Sorry, fans. <laughs> I am about that. We can set up an OnlyFans for the sexy Michael voice, maybe. Mark it down. Episode 100. You can come bring it up again. Well, we'll talk. Mark it in your calendars, everybody. If you remember our last episode, we were talking about our custom game modes. We referenced a few times how we use hidden objectives in our custom game modes. So today, we're going to go over them. Yeah, I, I think that sort of we came up with these because sometimes the balance can be a little bit, a little bit wonky. So, you know, hidden objectives spices things up and helps smooth out the game. And before we start with that, I just want to extend a quick thank you out to Vapor for sharing your game modes with us. We checked them out. They're pretty cool. We thought that it could be cool to perhaps combine our hero hunt with the modified cut off the head game mode. That sort of would be a cool little clash of the different game modes and I think would be slick and fun to try. That being said, let's get into discussion regarding the hidden objectives that we play in our game modes. So, Michael, what are our hidden objectives from a conceptual perspective? So as we were exploring uh, our, our different game modes, we wanted to see what we could do to make some of the, the more basic game modes more interesting and maybe uh, a bit more dynamic. It can be a little bit tough when sort of one, one side's on their heels. Uh, you know, there's a clear advantage and 
we usually end up playing out our matches anyways, but sometimes you, you can just tell by the state of the board that there's really no chance of victory for your side. Uh, and that can make the game drag a little bit towards the end. So we were, we were thinking of ideas for how do we sort of make, make the games more dynamic, give sort of all sides reasons to keep doing things in the game. I, I had seen hidden objectives for like sort of Warhammer style uh, tabletop games before. And I figured that maybe we could do something like that for our games. So we introduced victory points. Um, we mentioned last time in our in our, our conversation about the different game modes, we sort of started adding victory points to all of those. We settled on on 10 points is generally what you get for completing the main objective of whatever the scenario is. And then we have three points available for each of the side objectives. So the hidden objectives are worth three points. And that's enough that sort of the battle can still be swingy based on completing your hidden objectives. And it, it turns sort of a, a partial a partial loss, a partial victory. You can turn it around. If, you know, in the attack and defend, there are three objectives uh, worth three points, three points, and four points. So if you manage to destroy two of the objectives and complete a side mission, that's probably going to be enough to secure you victory. Unless the enemy also secures one of their hidden objectives. So it keeps it, it keeps it exciting. Sometimes it's obvious when your, your opponents accomplish them. Sometimes you don't really know until the end that, uh, that what their mission was and, and what they've done. That's sort of the, the general idea with it. Nathan loves playing with these, but I, I think that we haven't played with them as much as I'd like to sort of say how good they all are. Uh, but it's at least a starting point, and, and I do like the concept a lot. Our game modes are, in general, a little bit complicated, as you know, because we like to make things complicated, or at least I do. And I always feel like when we don't include the hidden objectives, despite the complicated nature of our games, it just makes them seem so much more flat in general. And when the objective to win is so clear on either side, in many ways, it really limits the viable strategies and the way to play. So you can sort of see the battle coming about and you can predict what's going to happen over the next 10 rounds. Whereas when you have hidden objectives, all of a sudden you have this random element that you don't know. It changes the motivations of the players, it changes their strategies coming in. And because most of our game modes, we don't play with a simple win-lose condition. For example, most of our games, I think only in Hero Hunt, when the hero extracts, does he get 10 victory points. Every other game mode, it's degrees of success. Like how many of your facilities did you defend and attack and defend? If you defended two, you get six victory points. If the person attacking destroyed one, they get three victory points. So if they got the three victory points and they got two hidden objectives and you didn't get any hidden objectives and they've extracted, technically they've won because they'd have nine victory points total over your six. So that just adds a lot of flavor and it makes every game mode feel extra unique. So, you know, our game modes themselves are pretty unique. But then on top of that with the hidden objectives, it's just that extra spice. No game situation ever feels the same, in my opinion. And all of these are, are sort of, our goal is to have something that is not too challenging to accomplish. It's not free points, but they're, they're sort of things that you don't build your entire game plan around. You don't know what these actually are until 
the day of the, the actual match. And they shouldn't, they should be sort of things that, you know, any well-rounded lance could accomplish. Uh, we'll, we'll run through them all and you can judge for yourself whether you think we've, we've achieved that. But yeah, that's sort of the general idea. The, the game is still about whatever the main objective is. That's still the main way to win. But these provide an extra something that you can at least get some points on the board for yourself. Yeah, so, so as Michael mentioned, we do incorporate a lot of randomness and unknown into the game, even when you're planning your lance. So you can't max min in a, in a vacuum sort of situation. When we're determining our hidden objectives, we do it the day of. So you know the game mode coming in, but then when you sit down at the table, you roll for what your hidden objectives are, and you don't share them with the rest of the table. You roll, and then you mark them down on your sheet. And so you've already come in with your lance, you already know the, the game mode, but then there's the random setup elements that we incorporate in each of our game modes. And then on top of that, there's the random hidden objectives. And it just makes everything feel, feel super, super spontaneous and exciting. Like, yeah, it just makes every game different. Totally. Let's actually jump in. Let's look at them one by one. And this is only the, the list that we've got for now. Uh, I, I dream of, of a world where we have a list of like 20 or, or like 100 of these, just because I, I think they're a lot of fun and, and there's a lot of ideas that you can have for how these work. And so basically how our objectives work is so once again, you roll two hidden objectives. So the max point value, victory point value you can get if you succeed on both your hidden objectives is six. We have eight of them. If you roll the same objective twice, it modifies that objective and it becomes an enhanced objective. What we initially did, you could roll the same one twice. And in that situation, if you did, essentially you get double points for that objective. But there are some objectives that were much easier to accomplish situationally than others. And this basically just created some wacky handing out point situations. So we decided to modify it a little bit. So walk us through the first one, Michael. All right, so the first one we have, this was one of the original ones back when we had like three ideas. So the idea is a data scan. So this is about forcing you to go and move somewhere. So we, uh, if you roll this, then you randomly determine a hidden cache or a data vault or whatever you want to call it on a space anywhere on the map that isn't your landing quadrant, wherever you spawn, whatever your, your spawn area, you can't drop the, drop the cache in there. You have to move into there, and then from nearby, you have to make a scanning check. Are these uh, the rules that we use for scanning? Is that is that an actual rule in the game somewhere? Yeah, that's something that we made up. So, so we we have a few different modes where we involve a a scan, and that scan check is a a pilot check with any movement modifiers for yourself. And then plus one per hex that you are away from the scan target. So you have to get there. You have to get close to a, a hidden location. You have to run a scan. Uh, and the closer you are, the easier it is. But technically, you don't actually need to be right on the point, especially if you have a good pilot and a light mech. Uh, and then for the enhanced objective, we just add a second one. Easy peasy. You just have two different caches to scan. This one actually has created some pretty unique situations, I think, in gameplay. I mean, it all comes down to the moon fog mission again. <laughs> this one sounds pretty easy. It sounds like one of the least challenging objectives, but moving to a specific random hex on the map and completing the scan, normally when people don't crank their piloting skill that high, it can actually be challenging. 
I don't think we've ever had someone so far get it the first turn, like in terms of they've moved then they tried the scan. Everyone, it takes about two scans to get at least. It's amazing how just saying to someone, okay, you have to complete your normal objectives of this mission. But now if you want bonus points, you have to run to this random location, you have to be close enough to it, and you have to do a scan. It actually is quite challenging, despite it sounding pretty simplistic. Yeah, I, I think this is sort of, you know, this is one of the first ones we came up with. And, and this was really, I think, what we had in mind when you were coming up with these is, like you say, you know, it's, it's not free points unless you randomly choose something really convenient to you. And it's not too hard if you have sort of a well-rounded lance. But if you have a very a very specific strategy, you know, if you're a defender and you're you're bunkered down with a bunch of assault mechs and nothing else, then you're sort of going to have to give up on these points if they come around. But if you bring along, like I say, a rounded lance, you got a, a light or something, then it's pretty easy to lose the light for a couple turns. Just makes it a bit more dynamic, makes you have to think a little bit about what you're going to do, whether you're going to be able to accomplish this before the main scenario ends. Totally. Although there still is that cost, which is great. Like even if you have the light, you still have the cost of dedicating the light to this task and putting them out by themselves. So I think there's still a lot of risk there, which is fun. Oh, I guess we should clarify for a scanning check. What phase do we do a scan check in? End phase. The mech can still be doing other things. The mech can still be fighting. You just need to be in the right, the right vicinity to, uh, to make the check. So the next one is called Good Salvage. This is you eliminate a battle mech without coring it. So, I know, you leg the mech, you take the engine out, be it like a right torso or something like that, you take it out with the head, etc., etc. The enhanced objective of this one is that you have to eliminate a mech by destroying the head. So obviously this is going to change the strategies you're going to do. You're going to start focusing maybe on aim shots at the head, which is obviously very extremely challenging and situational, or punches. Or who knows, death from above, the best attack. Yeah, this one's pretty simple. This one's pretty straightforward. I think good salvage is one of the ones that is one of the more situational hidden objectives in general. Even eliminating a battle mech without coring it is situational. So this one just really doubles down on that situational nature. Good salvage. I think we get it. Um, the next one that we've got here is predator. So here... I, I like the more diegetic objectives. I can imagine where they fit into uh, the particular battle that's happening. Our mercenary company is down on its luck. We need to steal some data or we, you know, we really want to grab a, a battle mech for salvage. Uh, but some of them are some of them are goofier. Uh, so so predator is that you need to claim a limb from a, a battle mech as a trophy. You just got to go out there and you got to tear a limb off and I guess carry it until the end of the match. I think when we played with this previously, we just let them take it. As long as a limb trophy's been claimed from a battle mech, they don't need to hold it. Oh, so you can just tear it off and then throw it on the ground? Well, I wouldn't do that. I would carry it all the way until the end of the match, but in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, and then for the enhanced uh, objective, we say you have to use that as a club to strike a unit. So you have to successfully hit another unit using the uh using the club now now that i'm reading this though technically this doesn't say enemy unit can i complete the enhanced objective by tearing the arm off of a friendly battle mech and then slapping them with it uh let me just write something here really quick <laughs> 
<laughs> We're getting live revisions. Okay, so I have to tear the limb off of an enemy battle mech, but I could slap my friend with it. All right, one second here. Hey, buddy, check out this limb I just yanked off. Pow, isn't that cool? Oh, so ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so it turns out you have to tear the limb off of an enemy battle mech and you have to strike an enemy unit with it for the enhanced objective. I, I, I misread. I don't know. I, I went cross-eyed or something when I was reading the rules the first time. So I'm sorry about that, listeners. Anyways, this is, this is just goofy fun. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Well, it's self-explanatory if you have read uh, Tactical Operations with the rules for grabbing things. Because I think that's where picking up is in tac Ops. It might be yanking a limb off a mech is in tac Ops. But I think that picking up a limb, because limbs can get blown off or like yanking a tree from the ground, something like that. I think that's in just the normal rules. Yeah. So we, we usually play with the advanced rules for picking up, which requires you to go hull down over a prone mech. And then there is a uh, uh, basically a piloting check that you need to make to grab it. But. This is sort of, this is something that depending on on the rules that your table plays with in particular, you can decide exactly what tearing a limb off requires. I believe you can tear a limb off any mech that is immobile. So I've I've been looking out for an opportunity where I could tear a limb off of an unconscious mech warrior without eliminating the mech, but I haven't had the opportunity yet. Uh, I guess one other one other rules change that you do need for this uh, compared to default battle mech manual is you obviously need to track where mechs fall. Normally you remove mechs from play once they are eliminated. Uh, so you'll just need to make sure you drop a token where they die so that they're still available. Their their hull is still available to uh, to salvage off of. So anytime you play with side objectives, you know, we recommend just keeping track of where your kills are. So the next objective is called War Crime. And this one we've actually rolled quite a lot. But essentially you're destroying a cloaked hidden cache located in a random space that's excluding your landing quadrant. So similar to the data scan, except now there's a location you're trying to destroy. The hidden cache has 40 hit points, and the enhanced objective for this is that the hidden cache instead has 60 hit points, and it no longer counts as immobile, so you no longer get the minus four. Explain to me why it's no longer immobile. It has a crazy cloaking device that scrambles targeting computers. Okay, all right. So you're you're you have to you have to aim aim by eye. This is, I think, one of the reasons why we create the enhanced objectives because lots of times people would roll a war crime and then it would also count as their double points. And this is probably one of the easiest objectives to accomplish. I would say situationally. I mean, you're spending turns and damage to take care of this thing, but just how it seemed to play out when it was worth double points, it seemed to be way too easy. Yeah, I, I do think that it's it's pretty straightforward. I don't think that the ease is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you do have to, same as data scan, you have to maybe move yourself a bit out of position. Uh, you have to spend some attacks. Uh, so I, I think that it's in a pretty good place here. 60 HP is not excessive. It's maybe something that you need to decide on. This is uh, Nathan, have we have we considered um, using something like we do for the attack defend and basing the HP on the firepower of the lance? I was thinking about doing that too, but I thought it might make it too accessible. Like you don't want the objective to be 
as easy for every lance you build regardless. Mm -hmm. For example, if we think about the Predator or the Good Salvage or whatever, the difficulty of these will also slightly be dependent and variable based on the lance you've brought. So if we made War Crime damage value equating to the lance, it means that it would just be an easier objective overall in comparison to all the other hidden objectives. I don't know that I agree it would be easy overall, but I, I do agree with the idea of like some lances should be better at this. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Let's go to the next one. This is this is one that I sort of like the idea of. I don't know that we've ever seen anyone actually do it. I'm trying to remember. There might have been one person who who did it. It's been done, yeah. Uh, this one is is called transmit. Uh, and the idea being that you have to send or receive a communication in this particular operational area one of your mechs has to go to an elevated position where that means that there are no no tiles higher than where you are standing within five spaces of your location so the mech needs to go there and be in that elevated position for three rounds so you need to get to a particular location and stay there this is going to depend a lot on the map obviously uh sort of how how easy this will be and certain lances will might just get this for free if you have a highlander with a gauze rifle just sitting on a mountain they might be there all all match anyways so this just gives a, a little extra reward if you're deep in city fighting you might need something light that can hop on top of a building or something to uh to achieve this but i think it's sort of a, a fun thing it's not enough that it'll completely sidetrack you but you might be able to get it incidentally during the fight. Then for the enhanced objective, we just sort of dial up those numbers a little bit. So instead of checking a five hex radius around you, you need to make sure there's no tiles within 10 spaces that are higher than you. And you need to stay there for four rounds. Just a little bit harder version of the, of the, the basic transmit. Anything else to say on this, Nathan? Well, I think the examples that I have where this did come up. There was quite a huge cost for the person to complete it. There were a few roles where there actually were snipers and they tried to put snipers in that position, which which worked well. They did end up getting the objective. But because these are still framed within the overall objective of the attack, defend, attack, defend, retrieve, or whatever, there was still a significant cost on them to do it. They did do it, but by doing it, they sort of dropped their combat effectiveness a little bit. So there was that tangible change in the strategy. And every time someone's done this, they've already gotten two rounds in a row before I realized what they were doing because they managed to hide their intention by minor movements and like making you feel like they're just trying to dodge you and snipe you. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, you're still there. <laughs> oh, you bastard sort of thing. So it's played out pretty good, actually. All right. The next one I don't even recognize. You want to run me through this one? Yeah, the next one's called Identity Theft. Basically, for two sequential rounds, a controlling unit must be within five hexes of a randomly selected enemy unit in end phase. The enhanced objective is that it must be for three rounds instead and within three hexes. Let's say you roll against an assault and you have a medium or something like that. You decide to maneuver in there. All of a sudden, you're just trying to position yourself in back arcs and be sneaky and stuff like that. It can be pretty fun. There's some cases where this is going to be sort of impossible uh, if it drops on the enemy light that is running 13 hexes per turn, then you might not be able to accomplish it. Uh, but in most cases, if you have at least sort of one light on your team that can stay close or, or you know, it drops on a particular low enemy, just as long as sort of you have a mech that's faster than theirs, 
uh, this seems this seems achievable to me. I, I like the idea. Uh, I don't really get the the you know where it fits in the game world. Explain the identity theft to me. Well, identity theft's a clever name. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, I just imagine that you're you're doing a scan of the mech. Like maybe you're you're scanning the mech's command codes or something like that. Like you're essentially hacking and you need to stay close. But we want to throw the roll out of there. We didn't want to have a role scan for it because that'd be too similar to data scan, essentially. So that's what I'm sort of envisioning. I'm envisioning there's information in that mech. You need to hack it. This is all happening live in battle. It's so intense. Uh, that's a fantastic story. <laughs> all right, let's go to the next one. Okay, so the uh, the next one, this is one that I haven't played with, but it's you know fairly straightforward. Uh, falls into the same class, I think, as good salvage. So this is is uh, misspelled as fisticuffs, uh, and it's just destroy an enemy mech with a physical attack. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's something that, again, is sort of an opportunistic one, where you might see a good opportunity to go and punch. Uh, maybe your lance is not well suited to that, but maybe there's a good a good chance to finish it. You know, an enemy out of position, or maybe you just own it. Uh, and uh, you you really make it your mission to just nominate one of your max as a punch mech. Then for the enhanced objective, uh, we have it to do so, eliminate an enemy mech with a physical attack, but without the killing blow being a punch or a kick. This will make it a lot more difficult, uh, and I think locks out a lot of different lances will we'll just you know really struggle to do this, uh, depending on your lance, depending on the terrain. You'll need to look up the club rules, which I have never read in my life, and I don't intend to start. But, you know, it's doable. How, how good is a club? How, how, how much am I crippling myself if I use a hand to pick up a club? I mean, a club isn't necessarily that good, but you'd still have charge. You'd still have DFA. You'd still have push. You'd still have sweep. Sorry, what's sweep? I've never seen. You're making things up now. No, you can, you can sweep max. Sweep mechs is great because basically all a sweep does is it forces a piloting check. It's like a kick without kicking, so you don't do damage. You force a pilot check. You're hoping to force a fall to do damage like that. Yeah, if I was doing this, I, I would probably aim for charging. Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the charge rules, but I think that would be the most effective way to try and knock out a mech without a punch or a kick. Slam them. Yeah, for me, I'd look for charging or pushing situations myself you could also jump jet attack just go down drop prone in front of them with your back facing the opposite way and then burn them with your jump jets that counts as a physical attack it's in the physical attack section huh okay learn something new and we'd finally see that physical attack actually be used so anyways you know this is this is, again depends a bit on on opportunity it's it's not something that you can necessarily make happen if the opportunity doesn't present itself if you're deciding between continuing to sling medium lasers or charge the enemy, you know maybe this will make you think think twice about doing something exciting. One thing I like about this is because you know all the weapon attack phase resolves first, and then you go into the physical attack phase. You actually have to make a call with your shots in certain situations because you want to do so much damage, but you want to do the finishing blow with a physical attack. So you really have to be like, okay. So I've done this much damage. Do I keep pushing now? When do I sort of start incorporating those physical attacks? So it's no longer sort of the just all in mentality. Even if you're not raising heat, 
still reserving your attacks because you want the finishing blow to be physical instead. All right. And then the uh, the last one on our current list of eight, you know, this one, this one's probably my least favorite. You've explained some of these rules to me and I have aggressively forgotten them. So Nathan, tell us about Uplink. Essentially, you need to connect to a satellite for over six rounds in total. The enhanced objective is that in this process, you must connect to three different satellite types. So basically how connecting to a satellite works, there's multiple ways to do it. Any mech can do it. But if you have communication equipment in your mech, it becomes much easier. Essentially how it works is, let's say you don't have communication equipment. In end phase of one round, you say, I am going to try to connect to a satellite. The next turn, you essentially are unable to do anything. And then in end phase, you roll 2d6. On an 8 plus result, you connect. On a 12, you really connect. Then... Assuming you connect, you roll a d6. That d6 automatically connects you to a satellite, and different satellites give you different tangible benefits. So doing this task inherently gives you the benefit of the satellite for your entire squad. You then roll another d6 to determine how many rounds you maintain that connection. So the first d6, let's say it gives you a satellite that lets you have ECM on friendly units across the battlefield. Now you roll the second D6 and it says you have this ability for four rounds. So the max you can get is obviously six. So to do this basic objective, you'd have to at least connect to a satellite twice. The enhanced objective, you'd have to at least connect to a satellite three times. This one is interesting because it's both easy to do and costly at the same time because you're giving up essentially a turn. This is assuming, once again, you don't have the communication equipment. If you have a communication equipment, it becomes easier. But even though you're giving up stuff, you give your entire squad a tangible benefit from doing so. I personally like this one. There's a reason this is last in our list of hidden objectives, because this is a new addition that I was like reading through the books. I'm like, oh my God, we can connect to satellites? This is amazing. On the other hand, I hate the idea of connecting to satellites, and I have already forgotten the rules you just explained. But if I did want to read more about the rules, because I unfortunately rolled this side objective, uh, the new Tactical Operations Advanced Rules has the satellite rules on page 161. That's where I would go to learn all about these. <laughs> and it's actually, it is super easy. It'll be interesting to see once this one gets rolled more in our games, the type of impact it has on the entire battlefield. Satellites are like space angels, Michael. It's space angels giving you information in the battle. How cool is that to have a space angel in your corner? I'm, I'm just not sure how much it feels like battle tech to me. Like, obviously, satellites are important in war, but, you know, battle tech has this weird tech base and... Now I have to think about, well, if they have all these satellites, why don't they just all have like data feeds all the time? Why do I need to connect to it? Why did they build the mech without a satellite dish on it? I don't understand. It's from the good old days when everything works. Now it doesn't work anymore. There's these random things floating around in space. Maybe it's not satellites. Maybe it's just like hunks of rock. They're supposed to be that, you know, these satellites were dropped. So does that mean that if I'm on the attacking force, when we arrived, we dropped a bunch of satellites into orbit. But if we have 
if we're doing that, why didn't we send the mechs down with communications equipment to be able to hook up to them? In fact, why is it so hard to get like communications with command all the time? Why are we these lone warriors? Why is our lance out there disconnected from everyone? We got satellites. Just some of the beautiful mystique of the Battletech universe, my friend. So, you know, going back to it, uh, that's that's the eight modes or the eight hidden objectives we have right now. Like I say, I, I would love to build out like a bigger list of this. I, I'd like to see like 20 hidden objectives or more or something. So would love to hear from listeners if, if they have any ideas, uh, you know, fun things rules things something like like nathan has you know just plucked some rule from the depths of tactical operations uh to build a to build a hidden objective around uh if there's some weird rules you know about that never see any play we could turn them into a hidden objective yeah exactly so with all these hidden objectives we've already sort of touched upon it but if you're bringing a lance into a battle you know the game mode and you know that we're going to have hidden objectives. How does this change your perspective? It doesn't change things for me. I, I tend to try to build my lances pretty well balanced anyways. I guess knowing that there are hidden objectives might make me think twice about picking mechs that don't have hands. I generally like my mechs to not have hands. So that would be a bummer for a few of these hidden objectives. But I like to build a balanced lance anyways. I'd like to be able to handle most of these. Maybe the change is I try to bring at least one mech with hands. How about you? I think I'm a bit similar in the regard that I am going to ensure that my lance has breadth. I'm less likely to put all my eggs in one basket. For example, salvage drop recovery, the battle value is relatively low of the units we can bring in. So in that game mode, I wouldn't just bring a single planner mech that was sort of beefed up, for example. I think it would encourage me to try to bring, you know, a light and a medium, or maybe a heavy and a light or something like that to sort of have my bases covered. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that a lot of these provide more of an incentive to have that lighter complement in the lance, which I, I think works. That's supposed to be the reason why you do have lights and and zippy mediums is they can be scouting elements, they can be you know the pathfinders, they can be doing other things. And these hidden objectives, a lot of them really encourage that, having even just a very minimal scouting element. Yeah. And I think that it would also prevent me from leaning in on a mech that's saying, okay, I'm just going to play a complete sniper build or a complete missile boat build. Like I'm going to add a variety so I can handle myself more effectively rather than just double into a keep away sniper, if that sort of makes sense. Because of the way we've set up points, uh, you don't have to do that. If you do want to, you know, purely focus on the primary objective and you you just drop a, a Steiner Scout Lance of four assaults, you just give up on those points, but you can still win by doing the main objective. I think it mainly just encourages players in general to try different things and not specialize too deeply and try to game the system. For example, last night when we were talking about the piloting skills, 
we know now that certain mechs have certain piloting cards associated with them with how we draw them. The natural inclination then is, okay, I'm going to choose this mech. I like this mech anyhow, and I know it has this piloting ability. Whereas when we initially set up the system, we did so in a way that the piloting ability was essentially a nice surprise that would change things. So this is another element that even if we know that our piloting has this certain ability, I mean, other than jump jacker, which is universally better in all situations, it might, it might change our choices a little bit, right? Or jumping jack, not jump jacker. Jump jack off. <laughs> so uh, of, these, of these eight that we've got so far, based on your experience, which is your favorite and least favorite of these, uh, of these hidden objectives? I think my least favorite is war crime. And that's the one where we destroy a cloaked hidden cache. That's been randomly drawn the most. And it's been first turn. Oh, there it is. Shoot it. You know what I mean? It, it just feels like as it's come about situationally in the game modes, just the base objective, to me, it just seems a little bit flat. And my favorite is the uplink because we don't have a reason to connect to satellites. And satellites are cool. Space angels, Michael. Space angels. <laughs> Same question to you. What is your favorite and which one do you dislike most? So I, I think my favorite's probably transmit. I, I like the idea of it where you have to go to an elevated position and, and stay there. It's sort of, I think that it's something that you can do. It'll impact your tactical decisions. You know, you have to stop. You have to look at the battlefield. You have to plan out how am I going to accomplish this, but it doesn't fundamentally like undermine what you're doing with the game. You know, you might be putting yourself not exactly where you want to be, but you're also not going to be throwing the game. For least favorite, I, I think probably going to be the enhanced versions of either good salvage, having to headshot a mech or, or destroy a mech by destroying the head, or the enhanced version of fisticuffs having to destroy a mech with a physical attack that isn't a punch or kick. You know, my, my instinct reading those is that they might just be a bit too challenging to actually bring about. You know, the idea of a situational one I'm, I'm down with. I think that the, the base versions of both of those are fine. It's just the enhanced objective might be a little bit too situational that the side objective stops really affecting how you play the game because you you risk like you know really throwing if you if you put yourself if you focus on that side objective yeah what's interesting actually when i'm thinking about this is other than war crime once again the only reason i don't like war crime is because it comes up a lot and seems like it's just being handed out a little bit at those situations it's not but it just feels that way sometimes is good salvage predator and fisticuffs and these are like the modifications on different physical attacks and destroying a mech in a certain way sort of situations. The reason I don't like these is because in many ways they feel more luck-based than the other ones. The other ones seem more ingrained in a strategy choice you can make on the battlefield, whereas the other three are... Like, there's ways you can shape your luck in that direction for sure, but it still leans more on luck. Yeah, so I, I would certainly not want that type of objective to become the main type of objective. You know, right now, like you say, we've got sort of the three situational ones and then five like decisions that you make what you are doing as an action. And I think that's an okay ratio. 
I think you and me both like to play with a strategy in mind. My strategy might be a little more crazy than yours, <laughs> but we still have strategic minds in this game. But I know that certain players, like if Jim was playing this, for example, he'd be like, I want good salvage mm -hmm. because Jim is known for his lucky rolls. So he's like, I have faith in my rolls to head a mech this game. So I just, I'm going to roll the dice and I'm not even going to change my strategy. It's like, okay. But I mean, like some people like that sort of element. I, I really like these. And, and like, I, like I was saying earlier, if you listener have any ideas that you think would make fun hidden objectives, please let us know. I, I'd love to build out this list more as we, as we play. I, I think that they're a really neat idea. And I, I don't know about you, Nathan, but I feel like more hidden objectives is almost always going to be better. I agree 100% because more is more interesting and it's just less chance that you get locked into a hidden objective that you don't like. I also think we should have about 50 other objectives specifically regarding uplinking to satellites. <laughs> One for every satellite type. Now that would be hard. Uplink to this specific satellite for 20 rounds. Got to connect to the satellite. Got to connect to the satellite. <laughs> So you see, you were asking, how would I adjust my strategy? And if uplink becomes a thing, then like if we if we had six different satellite ones, uh, I'm just bringing a freaking like, uh, I don't know, a 200 battle value truck that has a guy with a computer in the back. <laughs> and they just sit in the back, just uplinking to satellites all day, every day. That's their job. They're the uplink dude. <laughs> and I would bring a priest from Comstar and he'd be praying to the satellite angels. Or word of Blake, I guess. You know, satellite space angel, tomato, tomato. <laughs> it's all the same. So yeah, let us know if you have any ideas. Uh, let us know if you try any of these out. We This is one of my, my favorite things that we've sort of played with. So uh, excited to hear if anyone else has a has a good time or something similar in their own games. Tertiary Objective Battlefield Outcome Report Segment Initiating This is the Interstellar News Network reporting live Nathaniel Smith in the air above the battlefield watching as the remainder of a Comstar lance consisting of a blackjack and mongoose hunt down their injured prey a clan steel viper vulture through the thick muds of this vista on Tukayid. Although the battle seems to be near one, remember viewers, a corner dog is a mad dog. Will the might of Comstar prevail? As always, our thoughts and wishes are with the brave mech warriors of the inner sphere who... What just... Well, viewers from across the inner sphere, that's live broadcast for you. The vulture has fallen, cored out by the precision strike of the mongoose. Surely, one of Comstar's finest pilots. Let this moment officially mark the end of the Clan Steel Viper Offensive on Tukayid. This has been Nathaniel Smith with INN boots on the ground. Always first on the scene. So, what happened? Well, a mongoose through a single critical hit blew out the entire engine of a mad dog. So how did it happen? A few fun things came together to bring about this dramatic outcome. The mongoose player had activated an add 5 damage to 2 weapons initiative card. 
and had declared that two of its medium lasers would now do 10 damage each. Then, when attacking, one of these lasers hit, and it managed to just scratch through the center torso armor of the Mad Dog. This was the first breach on the mech. Because we were playing with the advanced criticals rule, the Mongoose got a plus one on their critical roll as the breaching damage equated to 10. The Mongoose then rolled a 12. 12 plus 1 equals 13, and 13 on the advanced criticals table equals 3 criticals. The Mongoose pilot then rolled for crit location. First roll, hit the engine. Second roll, hit a different engine slot. And third roll, a third engine slot. And just like that, the Mad Dog was officially dead in the mud, from a single medium laser reflecting around those internals like they were full of things that really didn't like medium lasers. That's one dead Mad Dog and one alive cranky player. Man, Battletech is the best. Secondary objective, rule check discovery segment. Initiating. All right, everyone, to our rule mistake of this episode, we actually had a different rule mistake planned, uh, but this came up in a game last night, and when I was looking at the common misconceptions in the Battletech manual, it was one of them. So I was all like, oh my god, there's other people that are dumb like me. And when, when, when Nathan mentioned this one to me, I suddenly remembered that, oh yeah, this is how we used to play it, and uh, it was kind of hilarious. So I'm, I'm actually excited to talk about this one. So this one is just an example of us or my, myself, of course, it's always me, misinterpreting the rules as they were written. When you fall in the game, you roll d6, and that d6 determines your facing on that hex. How we were playing it is we thought that it determined your location hexes away from where you fell. So if you had something that said two hex sides right, we interpreted that as two hexes to the right or two hexes to the left or whatever it was. And this created some crazy friggin' three stooges moments as we were playing. Yeah, I, I do. When you when you mentioned this, I, I did remember way back when I didn't know the rules and I just started playing with you. I'm like, oh, yeah, we did play it like that. Mex would just get like, you know, hit by a bunch of lasers and then they just like go stumbling, tumbling away like a hundred meters into the distance. What I visualize, it's like you have these amazing mech pilots. They land in the battlefield, jump jetting on top of a building. I am the most well-trained mech pilot on this battlefield. Four medium lasers hit it. Whoa. <laughs> sort of situations. I remember falling off of six-story buildings with this. I remember situations in which I'd fall and then I'd roll into someone and they'd be like, okay, well, I'm rolling to someone. I guess this is like the skidding rules with an unintentional charge attack. So it made the game crazy. Yeah, and uh, it would occasionally like mess things up. I, I seem to remember situations where you would position yourself to, you know, laser someone and then punch them or whatever. And you would laser them, they'd fall down, and they'd like fall away from you. No, I can't punch them because I shot them. I, I blew them away from my mech. Just dive rolling away like a friggin' doofus. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Yeah, it, it's very funny to visualize. It's uh, in retrospect, I'm not exactly sure why we ever played it this way. Uh, everywhere I've looked always says two hex faces away. 
but I guess we just read that as X's. <laughs> Another thing, though, was that all of a sudden it was scary to be close to people. There's a chance that when they fall, they might roll and unintentionally charge and hit my light mech. There was this sort of safety bubble that you wanted to have around enemy mechs just in case they fall and accidentally propelled themselves into your legs. <laughs> when you were playing with this for years and years, did you ever die from a mech falling on you? I remember as a GM, my mech got hit by the players and then my mech rolled and killed other enemy mechs. So it was on the player's side, so it was a happy ending, I guess. <laughs> the worst thing I had is when I jumped onto a building, I'm like, haha, I'm safe. Screw up my piloting roll and fall six stories, landed on my head. I was unconscious. I got back up. I still somehow won that match. I have no idea how, but uh, it was just a mess. I think it's because they're like, oh, he's unconscious. He's dead. Let's just ignore him for now. What's the best he could do? And I get back up. I'm like, Ugh! <laughs> there's been a rule mistake. I demand vengeance. <laughs> So I guess maybe uh, an addendum to this is, did we always play, I, it's a little bit fuzzy for me because, you know, I was, I was learning the rules back when we were making this mistake, but did we always play with like the facing rules correctly after falling? Like if we were interpreting it as falling to the right and then you land on your right side, I, I have like vague recollections of mechs like staying on the facing that they land on. You remember that? Where you were looking when the fall was initiated would always be the same. So it didn't matter if I like was three hex sides to the right or whatever. I would like literally still be facing. So it's like all of a sudden I'm doing like a side roll or a barrel roll. Like this really controlled back roll maneuver that the mech was somehow doing. <laughs> I remember in the old days I would wonder. I'd be like, you know, that's weird. It's weird that like if I fall and land on my back or just fall one hex back, it's the same damage as if I roll like two hexes away. You'd think there'd be more damage if I'm like hitting the ground constantly. These designers, what are they doing? That was a mess. I guess it maybe didn't have as much of an impact as it could have because we also didn't do pilot skill rolls as often as we were supposed to. That's maybe why we didn't notice quite how like bizarre this behavior was because falling down wasn't that common from what I remember. It's sort of... An equivalent almost of, of running up buildings, like how we used to do the MP wrong. You just run straight up that building. It's definitely just as ridiculous as that rule break. But yeah, this definitely didn't have as much the impact. It just made everything seem more comical. And uh, it's sort of like how running up buildings made sense in my head at the time. And I visualized it like, oh, the mech's just slamming his feet in, launching up, putting his fist in, bam, bam, man, this mech's badass. You'd been watching some Gundam, you know, watched a, watched a guy get hit in Gundam and go flying away. Blah! It was so Gundam-esque, exactly. And same with the rolls. Like, I fall, lose my balance, stumbling, my legs are doing like the AT-AT the thing, and, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he dive rolls, lands, ready to fight. Like, it was just so epic. But then as soon as you understand the rules, like my narrative changed and the fall is just like the three stooges. I know that the, the sort of the, the narrative lore is a little bit in between. You know, it's not quite the Mexar tanks on legs, but it's also not not Gundam. I was going to say it was an understandable mistake, but it really wasn't. We should have known better. We should read what the actual words say. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is just a great mistake that there's no excuse for. But man... The good old days, Michael. 
like that would be a fun modifier for for a match is falling down you have to use basically like a scatter die cinematic rules for battle tech every time you fall down you just go flying every time you get hit by a weapon you like slide backwards you get pushed by every every attack and then we could add the physical attack modifier table or like for different weight classes for the rolls to make it even more extreme that would be pretty fun yeah, so the lights are just like hurtling away. Assaults only get like nudged back, but the lights, they just go flying anytime a, a panther takes a PPC and it just goes like Team Rocket blasting off into the distance. See, one thing I think we should do is as we get better and better and identify more and more rule mistakes, I think we should make a custom game mode that uses all our old rule mistakes. <laughs> We're all of a sudden like, okay, this is how falls work in this game mode. Okay, now you can run up buildings. Okay, now you can use artillery on aim shots. Like, and just see how crazy it feels once we're like locked in with everything. Like, whoa, man, this is intense. <laughs> this is some anime shiznit going on. The official Bungle Peck TM game mode. We're going to do that. That's too good an idea to throw away. You heard it here first. In, in 2035, when all the kids are playing... Uh, Bungle Tech. They don't even Battle Tech. No one even remembers Battle Tech. Everyone's playing Bungle Tech now. This is where the idea started. It'll coincide with our OnlyFans release of the Sexy Michael voice. <laughs> That'll be a bonus. <laughs> get the Sexy Michael voice, and you get the custom Bungle Tech game mode. Nothing makes sense anymore. Yeah, your choice. You can you can get them on Patreon, or you can get the bundle deal at OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah, so that's that. Definitely a silly, silly, silly mistake. Tertiary objective. Stories of the Inner Sphere segment. Initiating. At the Cracked Canopy, a mech warrior bar in the gaming world of Solaris 7, a memory wall displays mementos of glorious victories and bitter defeats, of honorable loyalties and venomous betrayals, of lifelong friendships and lost loves. Each enshrined object ensures that the past will not be forgotten, and the future is something worth fighting for. International Zone, Solaris City, Solaris 7, Lyran Commonwealth, 12th of January, 3090. The Cracked Canopy is located on the corner of the brand new Memorial Avenue and Defiant Street. It's easy to find, as it takes up the entire bottom floor of a three-story building and has a catapult's canopy mounted over the main doors. It's rumored to be from a Wabi mech, but it's been repainted so many times, there's no way to tell. And yes, it's cracked. It was mid-afternoon when I walked into the bar. Sedge, the day bartender, was behind the bar cleaning a glass. Hey, Leo, he said. Sedge, I said, taking off my coat and shaking the rain off of it. How's the business been today? Slow, he replied. It'll pick up tonight, I said. Vaughn's facing Dvorak tonight in Ishiyama. He nodded. You want me to check the kegs? Yeah, I said, walking behind the bar and pulling out my apron. We're expecting a delivery from DiBatello's today, so make sure the stock's rotated. Also, tell Matteo to make sure he has everything for a large crowd tonight. Sedge grinned, making him look younger. Okay, boss, he said. He pushed through the swinging doors behind the bar, leaving me alone with the empty room. I'm the canopy's general manager and head bartender. I run the day-to-day -day operations, but I don't own the place. 
The place is owned by one Miss Silver, a woman I've never met face to face. At times I wonder what she looks like. All I know about her for certain is her silky voice on the phone and her flowing signature on my employment contract. The front door opened and a stranger walked in. Part of my success is that I can size someone up on sight. He was probably 30 years older than me, with a lined face and salt pepper hair peeking out from under a battered cap. He wore military trousers tucked into boots, a gray tunic under a hard-used leather jacket. Despite his age, he was lean and fit. You open? Yes, sir, I said. Drink? Sky scotch, if you have it. Red Isle, McEwen's, or Thistle's milk? He raised both eyebrows. What about sake? Six brands, including Black Pearl. Plum wines? Three different brands, including Vilanuva, but only one from Confederation Space. We also have a dozen brands of schnapps, tequilas, and even a few bottles of Dagda firewater in the back. He walked to the bar. As he neared, I spotted a few scars on his face and hands. And from the look in his green eyes, he had a few internal scars too. I'll stick with the scotch, he said. Red Isle, straight. I placed a glass down in front of him and poured the scotch. There you go. He picked up the glass. Why don't you have one yourself? I hate to drink alone. I thought about saying no, but got a glass and poured two fingers for myself. What do we drink to? Absent friends. We clinked glasses and drank. Well, I sipped. He tossed the entire contents in one go. He placed his glass down on the bar and looked around. What's that wall? He asked, pointing toward the back of the bar. I looked at the wall. There were framed photos, patches, armor pieces, and other items, all hanging or sitting on small shelves attached to the wall. Several of the armor pieces displayed insignia from Solaris stables, both current and past. Photos, some mech warriors, other soldiers, and a good number of civilians were clustered in groups, intermixed with plaques, names engraved. A broken katana hung next to a still-intact claymore, and several religious symbols shared space with a number of unit patches. That, I said, is our memory wall. When this place opened, a few customers left items to remember those who had died here or elsewhere in the Jihad. The owner told me that as long as no word of Blake items were displayed, anyone who wanted to contribute items for the wall could do so. Anything? As long as it's inorganic and in the spirit of remembrance? Yes. What about this? He asked, pulling a patch from his jacket pocket and laying it on the counter. It was a red and blue five-pointed star, emblazoned with a white W set over a circular red field. I looked at him. There's still a lot of places where showing that will get you killed. You recognize it then? I nodded. Wacko Rangers. He slowly nodded back. I was a ranger, he said, sadness shading his words. But I left them long before outreach. You want to talk about it? I asked. He waved it away. It's not something I like being reminded of. Then why carry the patch? He gave me a sad smile. That's a long story. I'll let you in on a secret about that wall, I said, motioning to the memory wall. Every item on that wall comes with a story. I tapped the patch. This has a story. He sat there for a few seconds, then nodded. Pour me another, and I'll tell you about the Wacko Rangers. Not those who died on outreach, but the real rangers. 
I poured him that drink, and he told me about the death of the Wacko Rangers. Manny's Story Name's Manny Totsky. After two tours with the Free Worlds League military, I struck out on my own in 49. Hired on with the Rangers in early 50, and took the death oath like every other member. By 53, I was a lance commander in Rami's assault battalion. I know what everyone thinks of the Rangers these days, and they'll only be remembered for their sneak attack on outreach, right before the word of Blake went crazy and started attacking everyone. But when I was with them, they were still a good unit, rough around the edges, sure, but no different from any good mercenary unit. The Rangers became my family. Well, until Coventry. That's where the Rangers really died. Outreach was a vengeful ghost, reaching out one last time to fulfill the oath. When the Rangers were hired by the Lyran Alliance, Colonel Wacko wasn't with us. He was handling the administration back on outreach. Colonel Wayne, old Four Eyes Rogers, was the Rangers' field commander. He was one of Wacko's old hands and steeped in the death oath for longer than I'd been alive. The Rangers' dragoons feud? I can say it now. It was a joke long past its prime. In the 60 years after Wacko created the Death Oath, Wolf's Dragoons and the Rangers rarely clashed. There were a few skirmishes between the two, but no major battles in all that time. We took the oath seriously, but the Dragoons didn't, and I think that pissed off Colonel Wacko more than anything else. In early 58, the Jade Falcons swarmed across the Alliance borders to blood their new warriors and they ripped through planet after planet until they hit Coventry. It quickly became a bloody stalemate, and the defenders needed relief quickly. But Archon Katrina had vanished, so it was Mandarin Termano Liao who got the ball rolling. Don't know how or why Liao was advising a Steiner Davian. I never did understand interstellar politics. To relieve Coventry, Liao had already hired an Eridani Light Horse Regiment two Wolf's Dragoons regiments, and the Crazy Eights. The Rangers had been hired to guard Tharkad, but the Archon appeared from wherever she was hiding and ordered us to join the Coventry Expeditionary Force. So, we went. From the start, things went wrong. While the Light Horse and Dragoons jumped into battle immediately upon landing, the Rangers and Crazy Eights were held in reserve. Colonel Rogers didn't like that, and he naturally blamed the Dragoons. The Light Horse's general, Winston, did her best to keep us and the Dragoons from killing each other. But you could have cut the tension with a knife. After a week of sparring, the CEF Brain Trust decided on a plan to hit the Falcons at Port St. William. While the Light Horse and Dragoons hit the birds head on, we and the Crazy Eights would move through the Dales and hit the Clanners from behind. Simple and easy, right? Wrong. The CEF command attached a company of the 10th Sky Rangers under the command of Caradoc Trevenna. At the time, he was a Hauptman who had survived the Falcon invasion, kept his unit intact, bloodied the birds' noses a few times, and knew the lay of the land a hell of a lot better than we did. But to Colonel Rogers, Trevenna was a two-bit militia mech jockey who couldn't find his ass with a roadmap and a compass. I was there, in the Grand Ballroom, when Trevenna reported to the CEF command staff. It took old Four Eyes less than 30 seconds to piss off Trevenna. Both the Dragoon's colonels jumped in on Trevenna's side, and it took General Winston's 
diplomatic skills to keep the peace. It was an omen, but none of us realized it at the time. I can still remember that day in the Dales. Even after 30 plus years, I can still see my landsmates' faces and hear their voices. I was in the Maulers, Mace McCarthy's company. Mace was another old-time ranger, having been born on the ranger's dropship a month after the rangers formed. He hated the Dragoons and didn't trust them as far as he could throw his awesome. My lance consisted of my marauder, Ariadne Sherbo's Griffin, Parker LaBelle's Whitworth, and Hector Shirotan's Dervish. Ariadne was my mech sergeant, tiny woman with a booming voice and a laugh that could cut glass. Parker was a quiet guy, always reading, and never had a bad word about anyone. Hector was a third-generation ranger piloting his grandmother's mech. From the start of the operation, Old Four Eyes treated the Sky Boys like something he'd scraped off the sole of his Battlemaster's foot. He ignored Trevena's suggestions, and when the Hopman tried reasoning with him, Rogers pointed his PPC at Trevena's Centurion and told him to scout ahead. Trevena left, but not before broadcasting to the entire regiment that he was going to punch Rogers out after the battle. It was mid-morning when we crossed Shallot Ford and advanced through the Dales. The Dales are a series of rough rolling hills with groves of trees and a few creeks scattered across them. It's not the worst territory I've traveled through, but it's not the best either. McCarthy's company was on the regiment's right flank, and my lance was the edge of the flank. Hector had point, with Parker on the left and Ariadne on the far right. I walked behind them, my marauder at the base of the diamond. Despite Trevena's people scouting ahead, I couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. Stay alert, people, I said on the lance frequency. <laughs> you think the birds are skulking about, Ariadne said with a laugh. I'm not taking any chances, I told her, and neither should you. Just then, the command channel came to life. This is Buckler calling Dagger. Dagger here, Rogers said. Go ahead, Buckler. We have enemy contact in Sector 2843. I looked at the screen displaying the map of the Dales. Sector 2843 was 15 kilometers ahead of us, and I saw the line was wooded, broken and rough. Tough for us to move through quickly. Hang on, Buckler, Rogers said. Dagger's on its way. That didn't sit well with Trevena, but the colonel wasn't listening. He ordered us forward confident that we could roll over any falcon pickets. At first, it went well. When we hit Sector 2843, a star of baboons challenged Trevena's scouts and got brushed aside, and we continued on. We emerged onto a large field, bordered on three sides by long rows of trees. The rangers continued forward without stopping. We reached the middle of the field when the falcons sprang their ambush. Several hundred long-range missiles came flying out of the tree line in front of us and slammed into the leading rangers' ranks. Half a dozen rangers went down in that first barrage, including old Four Eyes, and the rangers fell into disarray. The falcons quickly followed up with another missile barrage and attacked both flanks. Bandits! Ariadne shouted spinning and firing her PBC and LRMs at a Ryokin, who burst out of the trees to our right. A Black Lantern and Black Hawk also charged out of the trees and cut loose. More Falcons appeared out of the woods, and the fighting got hot and heavy real quick. Totsky to McCarthy, I shouted. 
two mech stars on the flank. Stand your ground, McCarthy shouted back. Pick your targets, I shouted, bringing both my extended range PPCs and large pulse laser onto the Blackhawk and fired. One of my particle beams ripped apart a tree behind and to the left of the Falcon, but my second blast struck just below the mech's cockpit and the pulse laser scarred arm armor. The mech staggered, but stayed upright. My marauder shuddered as the Blackhawk's laser shellacked it. Hector fired a spread of missiles at a Fenris, only doing slight damage. Off to my right, I saw a pair of clanner mechs I didn't recognize trying to outflank us. Mace! I shouted into the radio. I've got birds on three sides now! We hold! McCarthy shouted. We can't! I snarled back, firing at and missing one of the unknown mechs. We're getting hammered on three sides! We're gonna be killed if we don't fall back! And have the dragoons laugh at us? McCarthy shot back. We stand our ground! The heat in my cockpit was slowly rising as I fired both my PPCs at a Ryokin, scoring with one and missing with the other. Totsky to Lance, I snapped. We have to hold. We can't, Ariadne shouted. Her griffin's armor had been breached in several places, and heat rose from it in visible waves. I know, I shouted back, but the orders are to hold. Damn it, she snarled. There's two men. She never finished the sentence. A gal's round struck her griffin in the side of the head and ripped through the armor as if it was wet paper and out the other side. The mech toppled like a cut tree. I spun in the direction of the shot and cut loose with a barrage at one of the unknown mechs, which I learned later was a cougar. The cockpit suddenly felt like I'd stepped into a blast furnace, but I cored that cougar. As it hit the ground, I said, Parker, Hector, fall back. Hold your ground, damn it, McCarthy shouted. We're getting slaughtered, I shouted back. I saw movement behind to the right of me. A pair of Tan and Olive Rangers mechs, both heavily damaged, were backing away from the fight. We're beginning to break now. We need to withdraw and do it now. I fired another volley at the Black Lantern, ripping away some armor, but otherwise not hurting it. An alarm warned me of the incoming missile strike seconds before it slammed into my marauder. The cockpit shook like a rat in a terrier's mouth. I tasted blood. My vision went dim as I gripped the controls and rode it out. When the missiles stopped exploding, I spun to the left and searched for what had hit me. Smoke and dust was everywhere, reducing our vision to several hundred meters. The field, which had been green and level a few moments ago, was now a sea of craters and broken mechs. The sounds of battles were loud and constant. The hammering of autocannons, multiple explosions, the hiss of missiles, all added macabre melodies to the symphony of battle. I fought a lot of battles before and after that day, and none of them came close to matching that hell. Just then, four clan PPC blasts ripped into Parker's Whitworth. The poor guy didn't even have a chance to scream before his ammo detonated and the mech became a fireball. When that massacre came out of the smoke, I froze. Never saw one of those monsters on the battlefield before that day, and I pray to God I never see another one in person. I've heard a few people call them massacres, because that's what they do, massacre their enemies. Hector! I shouted. The Masakari! Oh my god! Hector whispered. He fired both LRM racks at the advancing monster, and hit it with both flights. But he might have as well been throwing water balloons for all the good it did. Mace! I shouted. We're pulling back! No! 
He replied, I'm facing three stars of clanners, including a Masakari. No! McCarthy shouted. We... There was static, then nothing. Mace! I shouted. No answer. Mace! The Masakari opened fire, and poor Hector died just like Parker did, in fire and fury. Then, for some reason I don't understand to this day, the Masakari turned and moved off into the smoke, as if I wasn't worth killing. I triggered the company frequency and shouted, All maulers, this is Totsuke. Fall back and regroup. Repeat. Fall back and regroup. The next 15 minutes still give me nightmares. Maybe half the regiment was still standing at that point. In McCarthy's company, only four badly mauled mechs answered my call. The rangers' battle line was falling apart, and they were breaking away and running off in ones and twos. I formed a small group of rangers into some sort of order and we retreated, firing at any clanner we saw. I lost several rangers, but picked up several others along the way and we left a few dead falcons in our wake. Chaos was everywhere around us. I watched another group of rangers conducting a fighting retreat until a heavy falcon star appeared out of the smoke, ripped the group apart, and sent the survivors running. Falcon elementals swarmed over any ranger too slow or too stubborn to retreat, and falcon omnimechs harassed those who ran. We moved into some woods, picked up a few more rangers and a couple of the crazy eights. Most of their mechs were missing arms or even entire torso sections, while others looked like mechanical skeletons. My own marauder could still move and its weapons worked, but it was one volley away from dying. My cockpit was an oven, and every breath was like sucking down hot coals. My head pounded, and my eyes felt like someone had rubbed sand in them. But I fought, and those around me fought. The falcons tried breaking us again and again, but we drove them off every time. We nearly reached Shallot Ford when someone shouted, Here they come again! Pick your targets, I said. I'm redlined, someone else said. I fire and Bessie will shut down hard. Fire or die, I snapped. The first falcon I saw was a mad cat. It fired off its LRMs and broke to the right as a massacre appeared and ripped apart a ranger's enforcer with its quartet of PPCs. We fired back, striking the massacre in the trees around it, staggering the monster. More falcons appeared on the flanks and we had to split our fire to keep them back. Thick smoke limited visibility on both sides, but we kept moving toward the Ford, firing every time we had a target. Their lights and mediums darted out of the smoke, fired at us, then vanished again. They're behind us, someone shouted. Keep on your toes, I shouted, turning my marauder to face the rear. A battered-looking Ryokin appeared to my front left, and I fired. Heat shot through the cockpit when I fired, nearly making me pass out, but the Ryokin went down in a heap. Rangers Marauders, this is Buckler. Keep coming. We'll cover you. It took several seconds for the words and who was saying them to penetrate my foggy brain. For the first time since the start, I felt hope. Copy, Buckler. I croaked. We've got falcons all around us. Understood, Marauder. Cardoc Trevenna said. Keep coming. Suddenly, the woods ahead of me lit up with weapons fire. I froze, wondering if it was a trap, but I then realized the fire was directed elsewhere along the flanks. Totski to all rangers, break and retreat. Trevenna's covering fire allowed us to run forward and pass through the friendly lines, across the ford and to safety. A few other rangers had already made it, including Captain Mark Bright, who took command. We continued retreating, us and the Sky Boys covering each other.
The irony of Wolf's Dragoon saving us isn't lost on me. The Dragoon smashed into the Falcon's flank like the Clanners had done with both of ours. The Falcons immediately pulled back and broke contact. And thus, the Battle of the Dales was done. And so were the Rangers. This has been an excerpt from the short story Tales from the Cracked Canopy, Blind Arrogance, written by Craig A. Reed Jr. The rest of the story can be found in Shrapnel, Issue 1. And that brings us to an end of our fourth episode of Bungle Tech. To all you hardworking mech warriors, mech techs, and mech lovers, thanks for the listen, and an extra thanks for spreading the word. As a reminder, we love to hear from you, and I promise we are building a list of future content based on the messages we receive from you. If you want to reach out, you can find us on Twitter at BungleTechTweet and via email at BungleTech at Outlook.com. Until next time, Mech Warriors, good fortunes on the battlefield. Selah. All podcast objectives complete. Podcast shutdown sequence initiated. <laughs>